0: Back in Genesis um, this evening. So we're going to be in Genesis 48, starting at verse 8. Um, it's on page 54 in the church Bibles. Now, I was in the children's ministry this morning, so I'm going to wait until you're all looking at me and smiling. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed from them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw that his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce this blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh.
1: Good evening. Welcome, you are welcome here. My name is Ed Clark, Since moving to Southampton last year, I've discovered what it takes to be a proper adult. It wasn't remembering to tax the car at 3 o'clock in the morning um, or uh, finding the correct way to clean a bathroom. No, to be a proper adult, you must be prepared to answer two of life's most important questions don't switch off. If you're in that category of people where you don't quite feel like you've been a proper, you're not quite a proper adult yet, this will be relevant for you soon. You may be being asked these questions right now, or even worse, you may be some of the people asking these questions. The cornerstone of curiosity, what are you doing with your life, and where are you going on holiday? Uh, Each as deeply profound as the other. These questions, in fact, never go away. They come from that typical British awkwardness. If you don't know someone, you talk about the weather, and if you do know them a little bit, you ask them what are they doing with their life and where are they going on holiday this year? These questions are actually remarkably quite deep. Greek philosophers were amongst the first to ask questions like this. They would ask about the telos of your life. They would ask about the purpose, the direction. What is your life pointing to? The destination make sense of the journey and you may recognize the same curiosity in the question what are you doing with your life that phrase is a modern way of asking that same question it's a question we all ask at different points whether we're at that stage where we're about to go off to university whether we've got a degree in a bank load of debt and we're trying to work out what to do with that uh, what's next for me in my job what's next for me in my marriage what's next for me in my retirement the same is true with holidays We have a destination, and we have a journey. The destination makes sense of the journey. Without the destination, why are we going on the journey? With the destination in mind, the journey makes a whole load more sense. A couple of weeks ago, uh, myself and Abby, my wife, went down to Cornwall um, to go on a family holiday. This is the um, route that we took, courtesy of Google Maps. Um, Along our journey, we stopped off in two places. These stops were not the purpose of our journey, but they did become part of our journey. The purpose of our journey was not to drive 64 miles to go to McDonald's for breakfast, or to drive 110 miles to go to Smith's Toy Stupasaw to buy that new version of the Uno game to take on holiday, nor was it getting stuck behind that tractor for 20 minutes. Um, These were things part of our journey, but they were not the destination. They make sense in the light of our destination, which was going down to sunny Cornwall. The same logic can be applied to my grandma's favorite question, what are you doing with your life? The destination makes sense of the journey. It gives purpose to the route. The purpose of my life has not been to get married, to get a specific job, to buy a house. None of these things are my purpose. They are things that I am doing with the destination in mind. I hope and work hard so that the direction I steer my life is part of some much bigger purpose. The journey we've been going on through the life of Jacob makes sense when we arrive here at the destination. Our passage today is at the end of Jacob's life. It looks back and it looks forward with purpose now firmly in view. We can learn a lot about living our lives with purpose from Jacob. If you've been following with us in this series, you will notice that 15-chapter jump from where we were to where we are. And those who are of us who are used to streaming platforms like Netflix, it's like clicking onto a new series and you click in the bottom right corner, realizing too late you've pressed skip recap rather than skip intro. And you jump somewhere in the story and you kind of, where on earth are we? We've jumped in the story of Jacob from Jacob and Esau's reconciliation to hear Jacob's final moments. The end of Jacob's story shares some similarities to the beginning. We are introduced to this passage through a blessing formula. A phrase that is repeated at Israel's blessing and here as Israel is blessing others, this formula is broken into two parts. It has a question and it has an answer. The question asked in Genesis 48 verse 8 is, who are these? Israel is presented with Joseph's sons and asks this question. What follows this question is an answer. Joseph replies, they are the sons God has given me. This same blessing formula, this question and answer is also seen at Israel's own blessing. If we go to Genesis 27 verses 18 to 19, Jacob goes to his father crudely dressed as his brother Esau to inquire about receiving the family blessing. He went to his father and said, my father. Yes, my son, he answered. Who is it? There's the question. And the question is followed by a subsequent answer. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. He lies. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so you may give me your blessing. In both cases, a blessing is preceded by this question and answer. These questions and answers seek to identify the significance of those gathered in these moments. The question establishes the identity of the one receiving the blessing. Who are these? Who is it? Who is receiving the blessing? And the answer gives... The answer affirms the identity of the person giving the blessing. They are your sons. I am your firstborn. The identity of both parties is affirmed. There is an additional practical element to this question and answer... Uh, Whenever I go to order something online, my bank requires me to verify my identity. I have to log into my banking app, scan my fingerprint to be able to purchase something. For that transaction to take place, I have to verify my identity. Something similar takes place in this transaction of blessing in Genesis 27 and Genesis 48 because in both cases, Isaac and Israel's eyesight is failing. It's a check and a balance, a practical check, because both of them are unable to identify those in front of them. In the case of Isaac, he does misidentify the son who is in front of him. We can't miss the irony here that Israel was able to deceive his father into blessing him because he was blind. And here is Israel following in his father's footsteps, asking the same questions, and he too is blind. There is more to this interaction than irony. This is not in the Bible to create space for irony. Hebrews 11 testifies to the importance of Israel's blessing towards the sons of Joseph. The writer of Hebrews identifies this as an act of great faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. There are similarities uh, between both blessing accounts. These are not in Scripture to create space for irony. They are similar because they both play a part in God's promise that from this family, God would make a great nation. There are similarities and there are differences. Jacob has encountered the good grace of a good God and in response actively plays a part in blessing the future nation of Israel. And he does so by inviting his grandchildren and blessing them as his own sons. Israel's reply in verse 9 is an invitation for these grandchildren to be brought close. Bring them to me so that I may bless them. What follows in verses 10 to 12 is a radical example of acceptance and inclusion. As Ephraim and Manasseh are brought before Israel, they are embraced and greeted with a kiss. The same took place in Genesis 27, another similarity. Isaac embraces Israel with a kiss. Israel is now embracing these two brothers with a similar display of affection. The difference here is that Ephraim and Manasseh were grandchildren, not directly his children. We take a step back and we frame what's happening in this passage in the wider context of Genesis and the wider context of Genesis 48. Why is it a significant difference that... Israel was blessing grandchildren, not children. What is this blessing that we are talking about? To answer these questions with me, I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 48, verses 3 to 4. It should just be on the page before where we've just been reading. This is the introduction to this blessing that is taking place. And Jacob himself frames this blessing for us. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples. I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. The blessing is a promise given by God. And it's the same promise that God gave to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See the similarities between these promises? The promise given to Abraham is passed from generation to generation. Abraham passes it on to Isaac. Isaac passes it on to Jacob. This generational promise is then affirmed to Jacob at Luz in the land of Canaan. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise was the family business. They were called to be people of the promise of God. It is their purpose to pass on this promise to the future generations, to play a part in God's unwinding story of grace. Coming back to our passage then, it is a significant difference that here Israel is blessing grandchildren, not children. A blessing would typically play out between a father and a son. That's how stuff was done back then. That's just what you did. But Israel is not playing by the, this was how stuff was done back then, rules. He is acting in response to the good grace of a good God, and it's the sort of grace that nothing can disqualify you from. Being born to an Egyptian woman was no disqualifier for Manasseh and Ephraim. In that culture, it would have been a disqualifier, but in the context of grace, no disqualification. They are invited, close, and embraced. This is what Israel says, Now then, your two sons, born to you in Egypt, before I came to you here, will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. These brothers are invited not as grandchildren, but as sons. This is demonstrated in the text through that line, will be reckoned as mine. That is the language of adoption. It means to be welcomed into the family, not as a stranger, but as sons and daughters. Similar examples can be found outside of Scripture. Each time the meaning is the same, that you are a son and a daughter, not a stranger. As the narrative of the Bible continues, this concept is rooted deep within the good grace of a good God means that we are sons and daughters, not strangers. Balancing the similarities and differences tells us why this part of the story is taking place. After Ephraim and Manasseh are embraced, Joseph takes it upon himself to position both of his children in front of his father, Israel. And Joseph took both of them. Ephraim on his right towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to them. He takes Ephraim and positions him to Israel's left And positions Manasseh to Israel's right. Joseph carries this out very particularly, bringing his second born son to the left and his first born son to the right. You see, to be under the right hand was to be in a position of power and authority. It's where we get the phrase now to be someone's right hand man. This is an important biblical principle. Scripture draws focus to this coveted position. Jesus himself is prophetically positioned as the right hand of God through the Old Testament. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And then Jesus is physically positioned as the right hand of God in the New Testament. Christ, who died, was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Scripture affirms that this is a position of authority, It is a position of authority that is intertwined with our narrative, our characters, and the good grace of a good God. Joseph's positioning of Manasseh at the right hand of Israel was intentional, so that as the firstborn son, he would be blessed in a position of authority over his brother. Now you do this because you're passing on the family business, so you take the son who's got most experience, who is the strongest, the one you trust the most and you would bless them over the other sons. The importance of the right hand positioning at this blessing speaks to the cultural tradition of primogeniture. This is a complicated word. Uh, This was the cultural norm where the firstborn son would be blessed in a position of authority over any other sons. And with this cultural norm in mind, Joseph positions his sons accordingly for this to take place. But Israel is not motivated by tradition and culture, but by the good grace of a good God. He disrupts and switches the social norm. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was younger. Crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Seeing his son's sons positioned in front of him, he reaches out his right hand, not to Manasseh, who by and tradition deserves this blessing, but to Ephraim. And taking his left hand, he reaches out and places it on Manasseh's head. Not adhering to social tradition, but to the good grace of a good God, Israel crosses his arms. Now it's not just his arms he crosses here, he also manages to cross his son Joseph. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. Dad, this is not the way we do things. Dad, this is not what you should be doing. Turn, turn your hands the other way. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refuses. I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people He too will become great, nevertheless. His younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will become a group of nations. He blessed them that day and said, In your name will Israel pronounce his blessing. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Israel is not motivated by cultural tradition. He is motivated by the good grace of a good God. In this simple act of crossing his arms... The principle of primogeniture is reversed. The world's values are reversed instead it took me so long to do that. <laughs> the world's values are reversed instead of the good grace of a good God. This act is not stand alone in the scriptures, it's part of a much wider narrative of grace, where again and again the younger is favoured over the elder. The law of primogeniture is reversed again and again in favor of grace. It is Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Joseph, not Reuben. The story continues again and again. The younger is chosen over the elder. We come to the story of David, where David is chosen over his elder brothers. We come to the New Testament, and we're introduced to Jesus. And the story is the same. It is the Pharisees who are chosen it's the tax collectors who are chosen over the pharisees the uneducated over the educated the last the least and the lost over the first the best and the found the narrative of the bible is a narrative of grace the good god grace of a good god he sees you where you are but loves you enough not to leave you there the ultimate example of this is the position jesus takes on the cross god switches his arms the lost the last and the least is redeemed we are given grace And he who deserves no punishment gets all the punishment. It falls on him. We don't deserve this grace, and he did not deserve the cost. But the good grace of a good God finds us where we are and loves us enough not to leave us there. The same God who gave grace to Jacob gives grace to you. In fact, this grace only gets better with Jesus. This is the gospel. The stranger is welcomed in as a child of God. We're invited Into the narrative of grace, we are reading because God took the initiative to switch the hands. See, He sees me when I'm quick to judge others. He switches the hands, the good grace of a good God. He sees me when I have a bad attitude towards money. He switches the hands, a good grace of a good God. He sees me when I muck stuff up again and again. He switches the hands, the good grace of a good God. This is where we should find our purpose. It's not about the journey and the stops we make along the way. That does not define our purpose. That's not enough to fulfill us. Our purpose is found. We are truly fulfilled when we encounter the good grace of the good God for real. And at that moment, everything changes. Everything changed for Israel as he encounters the good grace of a good God throughout his life. Israel ordains Ephraim above Manasseh because he has encountered the good grace of a good God and he positions himself in this narrative of grace. He says this is what grace looks like. The blessing he gives speaks to three distinct encounters with God's good grace. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. He positions himself in the story of grace by remembering how God has walked with his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He remembers specifically the promises made to Abraham and the promises that are reaffirmed to him in his life. He positions himself in the story of grace by choosing relationship. Israel identifies God as a shepherd. If God is a shepherd, then Israel is a sheep in need of a shepherd. This is the first time in the scriptures this language is used, the first time God is identified as a shepherd. And it comes from a place of personal relationship with God. The God who has been my shepherd all the days of my life. That's personal language my shepherd, all my life. God knows Jacob, and Jacob knows God. Jacob is reckoned before God, not as a stranger, but as a son. And he positions himself in the story of grace through recounting a real encounter with the grace of God. An angel appears to Jacob at three crisis points in his life, at Bethel, at Paddan Aran, and at Peniel. Throughout his life, Israel is sustained by real encounters with the grace of God. He hits a crisis point and encounters the good grace of a good God. Jacob's blessing, the the words he speaks, begin with these three reminders. He's looking back to look forward. He positions himself in the story of God's grace. He remembers how grace has been present in his life. He's seen and encountered grace. As he positions himself in the unfolding narrative of grace... He ordains the continuation of this grace. Jacob looks forward to the continuation of the promise. This is the release. May they increase greatly on the earth. May they be released from a place of grace. May they find their purpose through grace. This is a testimony to the grace of God. As he blesses Ephraim above Manasseh, the last before the first, he demonstrates the same grace he has encountered throughout his life. He demonstrates this grace and then he enacts the continuation of grace to future generation. It is that same grace that is available to us today, that same grace that puts the last first, makes the outsider an insider that switches the hands for you. It's that same grace that can change the course of your life. If you want to live a life of purpose to make sense of the journey, place yourself in the story of grace. Jacob remembered he chose relationship, he had real encounters. We can see our purpose when these are the steps along the way heading towards the final destination. Remember the good grace of a good God. Whether you've heard of that and you've known that throughout your whole life or you're hearing that this evening, as you go from this place, remember the good grace of a good God. And choose relationship. Call on him as your shepherd. Be reckoned as his, not as a stranger, but as a son and a daughter. Choose to have relationship. And have real encounters with grace in times of trouble Turn to him. When you hit a crisis point, turn to him. When you get stuck behind that tractor for 20 minutes and everyone's stuck behind you beeping and you can't quite get past, that does not define your destination. Turn to him and encounter grace. Let these things be the stops along the journey so your life is marked by the grace of God. Take this as an invitation. Find your purpose by placing yourself in the story of grace. I'd encourage us to respond this evening, um, not just to this passage, but everything we've heard. I'm going to invite the band up, and I'm going to invite you to stand. There may be a couple of different ways that we can choose to respond this evening. Uh, we may feel that our life is completely without purpose, that we're really struggling to see the destination. How do we get there? We may see no purpose in our life. That's okay. Come and place yourself in the story of Grace. It might be that we need to redefine our purpose. We've been like, stopping along the way, heading in a certain direction that, that is the wrong direction. And the Satnav needs to take us onto a different route. Perhaps we've been living faith through others. Perhaps we don't have a personal encounter with grace, that we hear of grace through other people. That's not enough. Jesus, God wants to have a relationship with you. Uh, it may be that you need God to intervene in your life right now. That switching of the hands, yeah, yeah, I need that. That may be you this evening. Um, we, we don't talk about God as if he's not in the room. We don't talk about grace and the switching of hands as if he's not going to do it this evening. Um, let's take a moment to pause now in the presence of God. Let him speak into our lives, prompt any which ways we should respond. Lord Jesus, Lord, we invite your presence into our lives again this evening. Come and move in this space. Prompt what you need to prompt. Change what you need to change. Lord, we are open for you to speak.